Welcome to North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week and inspires you to know Christ intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Christ daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its timeless truth for living life God's way. Let's listen to Pastor Brandon as he brings us today's message. For those of you, this is your first Sunday with us, or it's your first Sunday in a while. We finished a series last week um, on Ruth. Ruth is a four-chapter book in the Old Testament, not too far after the very beginning books of the Old Testament. And uh, we're going to stay in the Old Testament for this next month as we look at the the life of Jacob. Now, we have five weeks in March, and we're going to look at Jacob's life in five weeks. Now, it's going to be a quick Reader's Digest run-through, but I'm going to pull out elements of Jacob's life uh, as as he worked the angles to get what he wanted through deceit, deception, and being somewhat of a scoundrel. I want to talk about, as, this, as we continue in our theme of love this year, uh, and we look at 1 Corinthians 13, there's a definition that Paul gives us of love. It's not, it is patient, it's kind, it's not rude, self-seeking, all of that, right? Today and throughout the rest of this month, we're going to be looking at the aspect of love that is it doesn't demand its own way. That's hard because I know what I want, I know when I want it, and if you're like me, you want to demand to get what you want when you want it, or you sometimes might throw a little temper tantrum, right? You ever get frustrated when things don't go your way? Do you ever get frustrated when you don't get what you think you deserve? What what happens in those moments when we don't get what we want? Sometimes we find ways to go around the obstacle to get what we want. And in many cases, that's not a good thing. As we look at Jacob's life today, we see that as he worked the angles to get what he wanted, and as some of you might say, well, well that's, that's how new inventions are made. That's how all of this stuff, and I'm not saying throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, in regards to this, but I'm also saying there has to be a way we press in and press on with integrity. Not like Jacob did. Now, I know Jacob gets a bad rap, uh, but Esau also gets a bad rap as we look at these two brothers in this sermon today. As I was researching for the message today, I came across this uh, illustration by Thomas Edison. Does anybody know who Thomas Edison is? Uh, we have light bulbs because of Thomas Edison. Now, he, he did a lot more than that, but uh, uh, Thomas Edison, this great inventor of the uh, American culture uh, back in the 20th century, uh, was concerned about the way visitors in his office helped themselves to his expensive Havana cigars. This was before the Cuban cigars were illegal in the United States, and he would always keep a nice, fresh box of Havana cigars on his desk. And his guests would come in, and and it's just like uh, we have a candy dish uh, in the office, and we mean for people to take those. Well, I guess his guests thought these were just free for the taking, and they would always take his expensive Havana cigars. Since he wouldn't lock them up, his secretary 
suggested he have the cigars made from cabbage leaves and substitute them for the Havanas so that he would keep the, you know, the Havana cigars in a nice location where nobody else would grab them and give the cabbage cigars to his guests. Edison agreed to do this, but he ended up forgetting that he did this. Um, and, and only remembered later when the Havana started vanishing again. Uh, when he asked his secretary why the bogus cigars hadn't arrived, she told him that they had arrived and had been given to his manager who, not knowing they were fakes, packed them in Edison's luggage for his long trip. And do you know, Edison laughed, I smoked every single one of those cigars myself, <laughs> not knowing the difference. <laughs> Deception. How, how do we deceive other people? It's, it's, have you ever told a lie? It's okay to raise your hand. Kids, your parents are going to see you raise your hand. Oh, come on. You're telling me that you've never told a lie. All right. If you're going to stick with that. Deception has a way of biting us in the end. And, well, figuratively and literally in some cases. How does deception have a way of doing that? Deception has a way of catching up with us. You can, you can tell a little white lie. And what tends to happen when we tell a little white lie? We end up telling another one to cover that one. And then oftentimes, you see this in TV uh, shows and sometimes in the movies, where it, you can make a whole plot based on lies until you get to the very end and you realize, I'm out of lies, and all that's left is the truth. And when that happens, stuff hits the fans sometimes, right? Deception has a way of biting us in the end. Jacob is considered one of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You read this in the Old Testament. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the lineage. So Abraham gets a calling from God in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. Your descendants will be greater than the stars in the sky or the grains of sand on the earth. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all nations will be blessed through you. You're, that's the calling, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And then we move along in Abraham's life. His wife, Sarah, is unable to have children. But God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And in their older years, when she was completely barren and beyond child raising or child rearing years, what happened? She got pregnant. She got pregnant with a baby. The baby was born. They named him Isaac. Isaac is the son of Abraham. Interestingly enough, and it's a whole different story for another time, Abraham was told by God, take your son Isaac, your only son, to the mountains of Moriah and sacrifice him there for me as a burnt offering. I know I mentioned this in my class this morning. Some of you are teenage kids might enjoy doing that at times because of hormones and disobedience, but this wasn't that. This was a command of God. We know the story goes that God is not a God of human sacrifice, but he wanted to press into Abraham and have Abraham press into him and say, do you trust me? Even if I ask you to give up the most precious thing in your life, are you willing to be faithful to me? And Abraham was, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
the author of Hebrews tells us. We know that as Abraham was getting ready to sacrifice Isaac on the altar on top of this mountain, that God said, stop, Abraham, don't do this. For now I know, now I know I can trust you. You are the one I can, I can trust in to bring about this great blessing to the nations. Isaac then gets married to a woman named Rebecca. Rebecca, guess what? She can't have kids either. And Rebecca later on as as Abraham or excuse me as Isaac is praying God blesses Rebecca to be able to have children. And guess what? This is where we pick up the story today. She gets pregnant. She doesn't get pregnant with one kid. She has two kids in her womb. They seem to be fraternal kids, we aren't told, but they are totally opposites physically, emotionally, and otherwise. And this is where we pick up their story today. I think it's really interesting, though, that as we look at this story, do you know what the name Jacob means? Deceiver. Heel grabber. It's not a great name to have. And if you have that name, I'm not trying to besmirch your name. We, we were doing a name study at the house. I'm not going to tell you. But we found out that one of our four kids has a name that we didn't look up before we named them that. That isn't as glorious as it may seem, but still a beautiful name. We love our kids. So, but this is what happened. So, so we get to the point where they're getting ready to have these babies. And we start to find out from the very beginning of Jacob's life... It's this fine art of deception. So let's look. Genesis chapter 25, starting with verse 19. This is the account of the family of Isaac, the son of Abraham. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife, Rebekah, because she was unable to have children. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer, and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. The two children struggled with each other in her womb, so she asked the Lord about it. Now, moms, those of you that have been or are pregnant, there's a, there's a natural struggle in the womb, right? You see, I remember with each of the, 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 of, uh, the pregnancies of each of our kids and watching this movement, they get to a point in the womb where there's this almost like alien, in, you know, have you seen the movie Alien? Where, bleh, where it comes out. There's, there's, it seems like that's going to happen at times because the, in the eighth and ninth, or going into the ninth month, you see these weird movements. You think, and then they stretch out and they're like planking in there or something. It's just really weird stuff. So you have to know that it's beyond that. Now, I don't know what it's, some of you ladies may have had twins before. Imagine that in the abnormal aspect of the great wrestling of these two kids in the womb, so much so that she says, oh God, what is going on in there? I mean, uh, they're, they're below a, a layer of skin and, and muscle and all that stuff, but it seems like they're at war. God, what's happening? Why is this happening to me, she asked. And the Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. That's not good. And here's the reason why. Because in that culture, in that day and time, the firstborn son got the lion's share of everything. The secondborn son did not. Ladies, I apologize, you didn't get anything. 
if you, that's the way the culture worked. But it was be, be, uh, beholden to the heirs of the family, the sons of the family, to take care of the family uh, who might be in need. So we talked about that in Ruth last month. When the time came, came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she did indeed have twins. They didn't have sonograms then. Yeah, she, she must have been pretty big because to have two babies in there, you, you've seen moms that are pregnant with twins, they're pretty, pretty big to be able to hold two babies in there. And when she gave birth, she's like, oh, yep, I guess it's true. I have twins. All right. The first one was red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. How would you like to have that said about you? Oh, he was the cutest. You should have seen him. I just pinched his hairy cheeks. So they named him Esau. Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel. Now, imagine Esau comes out. He's burly. He's ugly. And listen, not every baby is pretty at birth. Some of them do look like aliens. I know it's not yours, but, but I'm telling you. So Esau comes out, and holding on to Esau's heel is Jacob. It's just Can you imagine this little hand reaching out, grabbing the heel of his older brother? That must have been a sight in and of itself. So they named him Jacob, which means heel or heel grabber. Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. When, when, when did he start praying the prayer for God to have his wife bear children? 40. He was 40 when they got married. He started praying because his wife couldn't have children. When did, when did they have the twins? How many years is that? We live in a culture where we want it right now. How many of you have prayed 20 years and God still hasn't answered? Or how many of you have given up after praying one month because God hasn't answered? You see, what we read in the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is this idea that God is wanting us to press in and trust him even when things don't go the way we expect or plan. And sometimes it could take two decades but we don't like that we live in a culture of instant gratification i want it now and if it doesn't happen now then god must not want me to want me to want it some of you have put prayers on the board over there how many white ones are still facing out are you still those of you that have placed prayers on that board and they haven't been answered yet are you still praying or have you given up? The reason we kept the board out here is because we believe that God isn't a God on our time. He's a God on his time. And he wants us to press in and pray through. And this is what we see in these stories is that Isaac prayed, God, I know you've given us the promise to be a blessing to the nations and that our descendants through my dad and me will become so great that they'll outnumber the stars in the sky, but my wife can't have a baby. Just like my mom was unable to have me until later in life. Does the promise stop with me? No, I want you to press in. 
I want you to trust me because in my timing, I'll work it out for my glory and for your purposes and for my purposes. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Oh, well, we see the story set up now. Jacob's a sissy, (laughs) and Esau's a burly, masculine man. It seems to be kind of what they're trying to get at here. But because Jacob stayed at home didn't make him a sissy, it just meant they were two different people. But I know the connotations that get thrown into the mix here. Well, you think, well, Esau's the big, mighty warrior, the big, mighty hunter. He's, he's hairy. He's a beast, right? And, and, and Jacob seems to be this frail character with a quiet temperament that stays at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game that Esau brought home, but Rebekah loved Jacob. <laughs> oh, family dysfunction. Now, it doesn't say they didn't love the other one, but if you know what the author's getting at here, they had favorites. Who was Isaac's favorite? Esau, because he loved the hunter. He gravitated more toward that. He seemed to relate more toward Esau, and he loved the wild game that he would bring home and cook up. Actually, Jacob would cook up. But who did Rebecca love? Rebecca loved Jacob. They're doomed from the start. When you have a mom and dad that are playing favorites, what do you think is going to happen to the children? It's not going to be pretty. One day, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. They're probably in their late teen years at this point, mid to late teens. So Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. Have you ever been super hungry? Some of you say, well, Brandon, you preach so long that all I can think about by the last few minutes of your sermon is what I'm going to eat. All right, so you, you understand what I'm getting at here. Have you ever been so hungry after being on a diet or a fast, or let's just say you've had surgery and you haven't been able to eat for how many hours before and you're famished? What's the only thing you can think about? Food and water. You're thinking about what you're going to eat. You're not thinking about paying your taxes or... You know, uh, you're not thinking about anything. The one dominating factor is food. So Esau comes in. Who knows how long he's been out? He's maybe been out all day. And he's famished, exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. I'm just, I'm assuming that's how he said it. Because he's big, he's hairy, and a burly guy. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. So Esau would become a great nation and would settle down south of what we know as Israel in a place called Edom, and there were these people called Edomites. It just means red, all right? All right, Jacob replied, I'll give you some of my stew. I've been working and slaving all day. I'll give you some stew, but listen. 
Trade me your rights as the firstborn son first. (laughs) You ever see sibling rivalry? You ever see, okay, well, I'll give you this if you give me that, right? Have you ever said those things? Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me right now? Because the birthright wouldn't kick in until dad died. And dad was still young enough that he had many more decades available to him. So why are you talking about birthright right now? Just give me some stew. All right, yeah, whatever. Have you ever said that? Right? You do this, I'll do that. That's years down the road. Whatever. Just give me a bowl of soup, stupid. I'm assuming that's what he said because there's no side note or cross-reference in there even though the S word is not appropriate. Okay, so don't say that word to anybody else. I'm dying of starvation. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first, swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, binding that swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as a firstborn son uh, to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew, and Esau ate the meal. He got up and left. probably didn't think a thing about what he swore an oath to at that point. And he showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. How did he show contempt? Because he didn't, he didn't care about it. That was something you just don't give up lightly. That's an honor and a privilege to have. It was a blessing that God had given Esau. But Esau said, yeah, it's not really that much to me. I don't really care. I'm going to give it up. Here's a key point really quickly. Demanding your own way oftentimes leads to deceptive actions to get what you want. And how did this play out in the story today? Well, Jacob wrestled with Esau in the womb, didn't he? Or Esau wrestled with Jacob. They were wrestling in the womb. So much so, (laughs) Rebecca said, God, what's happening inside of me? Because I can't see and it's starting to worry me. And what's God tell her? You have two nations in your stomach. Well, yeah, it feels like it. My goodness. Uh, They're warring against each other. And uh, the older one is going to serve the younger one in the long run. I think it's important that we note that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at this point, this is kind of a side note. The promise came to Abraham in Genesis 12 that I want you to go off into this area and I will make you into a great nation, even though he had no kids at that point and he was older in years, he and his wife. Sarah was unable to have kids. I find it interesting that Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was unable to have kids initially. And did you know, we'll find out here, that Jacob's wife, Rachel, was unable to have kids? What is it about God when he says, I'm going to give you the promise, but it feels like he's putting stumbling blocks in your way? You ever felt that way? You ever felt that God was uh, uh, toying around with us? like some sadistic master. He says, I'm going to do this for you, but (laughs) I'm not going to make it easy. See, you may view God that way, but what God wants us to do is to press in because he wants us to trust him rather than ourselves. I mentioned this this morning in the class I was teaching. Who are some of the most spoiled, bratty people on the face of the earth? 
It's those people who get everything they want when they want it. Those that are not as spoiled and are not as bratty are the ones that have had to press in, that have had to trust, that have had to endure hardships. Now, I'm not saying everyone that has to do that. Some people get bitter and they reject God altogether because of that. But some people and many people, it makes them stronger. I think because the promise came to Abraham at a point that seemed impossible in Abraham's life, and also for Isaac, and then again for Jacob, God's saying, listen, I'm not trying to make it difficult for you, but I need you to trust me. Above all else, I want you to know that when blessing happens, it's because of me, not because of some sheer circumstance that you were able to get pregnant. I want you to know that I've got this. I've got my hand on you. That I will follow through on what I've promised you. That I will give beyond your wildest dreams and all, all your wildest imaginations if you just trust me. And no, it may not plan out the way you have it constructed in your mind, but I am faithful and just, and I will do what I say I'll do. Have you ever encountered God like that? To where you said, okay, God, I will wait upon you. I will actively wait upon you. When you move, I'll move. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Have you done that? Well, Brandon, I don't even know where God is, how he moves, what he sounds like. And then I would say, then what are you doing to foster a deeper relationship with him? And you might say, I don't know. I don't know where to start, how to start. And I would say it goes in these three categories right here. And I don't want to categorize and make it so simplified, but God doesn't complicate things. Are you praying to him? And I don't mean, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep kind of prayers. I mean, are you really praying, God, I don't understand you. I don't understand me, why I do the things I don't want to do and I do the, uh, don't do the things I know I should do. I don't get it. You pray in those kind of prayers. Are you praying the kind of prayers, God, speak to me, lead me, guide me, show me something in the midst of this greatest need. Secondly, are you seeking him through his word? Because that word became flesh and dwelled among us. That's what John tells us in the Gospel of John. If you're seeking him through his word, you'll be able to understand who he is better. You'll be able to know what he stands for and what he stands against. And you can find yourself walking in his way rather than your own? And are you worshiping him? Those three things, prayer, study, worship. Because if you can't see, you can't hear, you don't know where God is, you need to seek him where he can be found. Where can he be found? He's with you. You just need to tune yourself to that frequency. You see, I think a lot of times what we see in the Old Testament through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and some of the others is that they, they did hear from God. They, they did know what was going on and what God had told them to do. But in the in-between time when God was quiet, they decided to take matters into their own hands. You ever done that? God wasn't coming through for you this quickly 
as you wanted or the way that you wanted. So you're like, well, I got to take care of this. What did Abraham do? Abraham's wife, Sarah said, well, doesn't look like we're going to have any babies because it's been about 10 years later after God gave the promise. Sorry, I tend to revert back to my roots. <clears throat> Abraham then is told by his wife, Sarah, hey, take my servant girl. Really? You want me to have sex with another woman? Yeah, go ahead. She could probably have a kid for you. And Abraham's like, well, all right. Now, it's not what it exactly says in that way that's Brandon's translation, but check it out. Because Abraham sleeps with Sarah's servant girl named Hagar. Guess what? She gets pregnant. She has a baby. The baby's name is Ishmael. And then Sarah ends up getting pregnant. Not much later, a couple years or so, and what starts to happen between the two boys? They start to fight and struggle. See, if you'd done it God's way, you wouldn't be in this mess. But now these two boys will become two great nations and these two nations will war against each other. Oh, man. I mean, this is what happens when we do things our own way because we're not getting what we want when we want, and we need to take, we think we need to take things into our own hands and do it because God's not coming through for us. Or maybe we were supposed to do this because God said so, and we can justify it and say, oh, yeah, this seems to be right because, well, we'll get a similar result. And God's saying, no, 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 I haven't said to move yet because I haven't given you the next instructions. What happens in the classroom when you're given a paper? I remember one of my teachers did this, and he may, your teachers may have done this to you. I want you to read through every question on this test before starting. The, the, the test was given out, what do most students do? They just go in and start, they mess up. What is the last statement? on the test. <laughs> Don't worry about the rest of the questions, just answer this one. And you'll pass the test. <laughs> How often in life do we do that? I have gone way off on a tangent. Let me get us up quickly here. <laughs> Jacob also wrestles with Esau at birth. What, what, what? <laughs> I'm sorry, I really tend to go down, I hope the bunny trail didn't distract you, but there's truth laden within the mess of this. Jacob wrestles with Esau at birth, how do we know? He's grasping at the heel. Now you think, well babies don't have this kind of conscientious effort to be able to make these kind of decisions, but there's some, there's some symbolism here. I think it's interesting that Jacob is grasping at the heel of Esau as if to say, no, 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 you don't. <laughs> Right, you're not, uh-uh, you're not going to take this on your own, not without me. And so from the very beginning, not only in the womb, but coming out of the womb, there's the wrestling that continues to happen. As the battle that ensued in the womb, so it continues in birth and in life for these two. Jacob will continue to grasp for things that are seemingly out of his reach for his whole life. 
And through manipulation and deception, he will ultimately get what he wants until we get to the very last sermon in this series where he actually has to wrestle with God to get what he should have wrestled for in the beginning. The blessing from God rather than from men. The third thing this morning is Jacob wrestles with Esau over his birthright. Why is a birthright important? Because in that culture and in that time period, the firstborn son would get two-thirds of dad's estate and wealth. Two-thirds. How many thirds are there to make a whole? Three-thirds. All right, just making sure we're on the same wavelength with the the math here, and I'm not a great mathematician. But the firstborn would get two-thirds of dad's estate when he died. And he would be the one that would hold control over the family when dad died. So Esau, by the very nature of his position of birth, would have become the priest of the family at that point because the father was the priest of the family. When the father died, it would be handed to the firstborn son who would then become priest over the whole family, the home, the priest of the home. Um, What else would happen? Jewish people attached this sacred privilege to this. There were judicial privileges. The father of the family or the firstborn son after the father died would have to determine right from wrong in the family, would have to set the course. Now think of the the massive responsibility of the firstborn. You might say, oh, I don't want that. I don't want that kind of responsibility, but it was an honor and a privilege given to the firstborn. And what does Esau do with it? I'm hungry. Give me a bowl of soup. Smells great. Jacob says, give me your birthright first. What's my birthright to me? Are you serious? Give, you want me to do whatever. Just give me a bowl of soup. Swear an oath first. Pinky promise. That's how they did it. But actually, he told you to seal a contract. What did they do in that day? Hey, take off your sandal. That's, if you go back to the book of Ruth, when they were sealing a deal, you take off your sandal and you give it to the person. You make an oath. I don't know if that's what they did. It doesn't say that, that Esau gave him his sandal as a verification of the decision they made that day. But, but that was kind of the whole idea behind this is I'm going to swear an oath before God and you so that it's binding. And they held oaths very, very strictly. Once he gets his tummy full, what does he do? He walks away, probably forgetting what even happened there because his tummy's full. He feels fine. I don't even have to worry. Why do I have to worry about this right now? Dad's not going to die for a long time. I'll deal with that later. Have you ever said that? I'll take care of that later. Just do, I want what I want right now. Give it to me now. (laughs) Kids aren't the only ones that do this. Why do you think our courtrooms are full right now? Why do you think our prisons are full right now? Because we have a lot of Esau's that are saying, give me what I want. And I'll do whatever it takes to get what I want no matter what the consequences are. I'm willing to give up everything to get what I want. 
Sometimes everything is your own life in a very bad way. Giving up your life for God is what saves your life. Not trying to find your ways around manipulating his purposes for you. Jacob would fight this fight to get what he wanted in any way he could. And God speaking into Rebecca's life saying, these two babies in your womb are warring nations. The younger one will rule over the older one. Wasn't saying I've constructed it this way, but was stating it as a fact. This is what's gonna happen. And that's what ended up happening. Esau for a bowl of soup traded the most important thing in his life. What have you traded the most important thing in your life for? So where does deceit come from as we close today? Where does deception come from? Where did it originate? The Gospel of John in the New Testament, Jesus points this out and gives us a clear answer to where, the, where deception comes from. Listen to what he says. Satan, in John chapter 8, verse 44. Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Where's the beginning? Well, Genesis. Gen you know the book of Genesis actually means beginning? Okay, just in case you're curious. So let's go to the beginning. Specifically, the very beginning of the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2. And who is in Genesis 3 that's wrapped himself around the tree and begins to deceive Eve into eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God said, don't eat it, because if you do, you'll die. Satan, the serpent, the deceiver himself. Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He was always, he has always hated the truth. This is what Jesus says, because there is no truth in him. Who has no truth in him? Satan. All right, so... All right, pause there for a minute. In the world around us, where you see absence of truth, what do you know there's a presence of? Evil, Satan, the deceiver. Do, do you see deception? Do you see the deceiver? Do you see a lack of truth in our culture or in the world? Do you see how the manipulation of truth and, and, and just shifting a few words of it can make it into something pure evil? Did God really tell you, Eve, that if you eat of the trees of the garden that you'll die? And she corrected him. No, 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 no. I know the truth. God said that if I eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or even touch it, she adds a little caveat, that I'll die. Oh, he says, really? Because he couldn't trick her up on the truth of God's word from that point because she knew it. And then he slithers in a little bit extra. No, here's the thing, Eve. <laughs> You're not going to die if you eat that because God knows that if you eat it, you'll become just like him, knowing both good and evil. God is withholding something from you, something good. He's not good. He's evil, wanting you not to eat something that's going to make you like him. She looked at the fruit and thought, huh, well, it, it does look pretty good, and uh, I am kind of hungry. <laughs> oh, wow. And she takes a bite. 
And she's like, hey, this is good. Adam, try some of this. And he goes, or peels it back. I don't know what kind of fruit it was. They ate it. Instantaneously, what happens? Something as if scales had fallen from their eyes. And they became afraid because they looked at each other and said, oh my gosh, you've been naked this whole time and I didn't know it. They looked and saw they were naked and became ashamed. They heard God in the garden and they hid from him. What does dishonesty, deception, and lying cause us to do? It causes us to hide and cover up. It's scary, isn't it? Nothing's new under the sun. We continue to lie and cheat and steal and cover up. And the end result is ultimately death. Unless we come to faith in Jesus Christ and allow him who is truth to set us free. Today, have you ever deceived anyone? Have you ever lied to anyone? Have you ever embellished the truth uh, of your accomplishments or abilities in order to get ahead or to make people think better of you? Have you ever lied to cover up your shortcomings? Have you ever lied to cover up your sins? Has your deceit ever hurt you or has it ever hurt anyone else? Because remember this, demanding your own way oftentimes leads to deceptive actions to get what you want. But there's hope. If you confess your sins, your deceit, your shortcomings to each other and to God, this breaks the control that Satan has on our lives and truly does set us free. See, the enemy can't have control over you once what you've hidden has come to light. Do you hear what I'm saying? I've hidden this thing inside of me, you might say. Because if others see it, they're going to reject me. They're going to think less of me. I could suffer consequences for this truth that's hidden inside of me. So I'm going to keep covering it up. No, no. See, the enemy can continue to hold sway over you unless you come to the point where you confess this and say, no, no, no. I got this thing in my life, this secret I've been holding back. God, forgive me for this. And you confess it. And what you do is you bring it out in the open and it's lit up by the truth that it really is. And Satan says, shoot, I can't hold that against you anymore. I can't take that and leverage it in your life anymore. I can't take this and use it against you. Close with this passage of scripture as our worship team comes forward to close us out this morning. In John chapter 8, Jesus is talking. And listen to what he says. I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is a part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you're truly free indeed. Some of you are here living in bondage because you've hidden something that you don't want anybody else to know about, and you've allowed the enemy to continue to hold sway over you and to hold you in bondage to that which nobody else knows. And I'm not saying get on this stage and tell everybody your, your business, but you need to find somebody that you trust, that you can confess to, who you know is not going to reject you, but uphold you in that truth 
and that you can help confess to God about. So that way the enemy holds no more sway or control over you. Don't be like Jacob who tried to figure out how to get what he wanted when he wanted it. Try to be like Christ who didn't see being served as something that he should do. But the great master of all creation became a servant and the least of these to others to show us who the character of God is. He's love. And love doesn't demand its own way. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we've demanded our own way at times. We've stomped and kicked and thrown tantrums, God, to get what we want or in frustration because we didn't get what we want. Father, we've deceived at times. We've fallen short of your glorious standard for our lives. We pray in a prayer of confession that we are sinners, but you are, you are an all-loving God who welcomes sinners with open, open arms, who confess those sins and repent of those sins, and you don't just welcome them, you call them children, sons and daughters, your sons and daughters. Remind us of those promises. Help set these people in this place free from sin and death. We love you, Father. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website at www.northmaincog.org where you can learn more about us. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. And if you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that'd be helpful too. If you'd like to donate to the ongoing ministry of North Main, go to www.northmaincog.org and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Again, thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.